I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. India has announced that it's extended its lockdown till the 31st of May with somewhat easier restrictions than we face so far. But questions persist as to whether or not there's going to be a second wave of infections once restrictions are eased. In a lot of countries across the world, we see that soon after restrictions are lifted because there's increased intermingling between people, there's a sudden increase in the number of infections. And there's no reason to believe that India is going to bug that trend, especially considering that over the course of the last month or two, India hasn't really invested in, in improving its healthcare and testing capacity like a lot of other countries are done. Now, we at Takshila have come out with a document on how India can prepare for a second wave, which we'll find a link to in the description of this podcast. In the document, we've talked a lot about what exactly India should be doing to prepare over the course of the next few months for the second wave of infections that's almost inevitable to come at this point. Um, so to discuss this document today, I have with me Sunila and Dr. Shambhavi Naik. So over to you, Doc. Can you tell us a little bit about why it is that countries can face a second wave? What are the various channels by which second waves of infections actually come about? Right. So uh, what we have seen in uh, countries such as China, for example, which uh, saw a, a decrease in number of cases uh, after lockdowns and a lot of other restrictions had put in place, uh, was that once they opened up uh, the borders, uh, they started importing a lot of new cases. So people returning to China uh, were bringing uh, COVID-19 back with them. So that's one possible source. But the other source actually is is inherent in a population because we have so many asymptomatic carriers for the disease. Uh, so, for example, ICMR is suggesting that about 80% uh, of people with COVID-19 in India are asymptomatic. Uh, so, we have not even tested them, right, because they have not even come under our radar. Um, and then once you bring them out of lockdown and they go and meet other people, there's a chance that they are spreading the disease and that they might be spreading the disease to those who are vulnerable. Uh, and so we will see a resurgence in cases because we start seeing more people show symptoms. Uh, the third source, which is a little bit uh, less likely than the other two, uh, is contaminated goods. We are still figuring out how for how long the disease, the virus survives on surfaces um, and whether it can be carried on goods that uh, move from place to place. Uh, but that is one likely source. So obviously you're not getting the disease uh, because it's on the good. But if you uh, touch the surface and then you, with the same hand without washing with soap or water or without using a hand sanitizer, if you touch your mouth or nose, uh, then you can actually get the virus as well. Uh, so those are three possible sources through which you will probably see a resurgence coming in cases. So what are the steps that we really have to take in order to know first that the second wave is coming? I'd assume that the very first step that needs to be taken is to increase the testing capacity, increase the number of tests being done in the population. How exactly does India do that? Right. So I mean, when you think about the second wave, right, I think our biggest uh, threat comes that, oh, we don't want to go into another lockdown. Right? People are really stressed about that. Um, and if we have enough testing, 
available to quickly get clusters uh, to pick them up. Then we can actually keep those lockdowns to specific containment zones, uh, like we are currently seen in like major cities. Um, so the idea is that we have to now balance the public health effects of a second wave to the economic effects of it. Um, and the best way to do it is to catch the disease quicker, uh, as soon as like the five ten cases come up, um, and make sure that it doesn't spread. I mean, all our preparations for the second wave have to be uh, in preparation for this. That this has to be achieved because otherwise it will just spread rapidly again uh, and we'll just see these waves of lockdowns which are really unnecessary. I think that idea of uh, identifying clusters is, is supremely important, right? Because rather than having these enormous centralized responses which don't really take into account local conditions, local nuances in the way the disease might or might not be spreading, you just see enormous effects on lives and livelihoods which can really be avoided. I think that a more decentralized sort of uh, communication strategy, uh, having more local levels of government getting involved in like actually uh, connecting to communities, helping them through the pandemic is, is a really big step that the government needs to be taking. Uh, the entire country shouldn't have to be on tenterhooks the day a lockdown is due to be lifted and wait for an order from the Ministry of Home Affairs, right? So there are two key things here, right? So one, devolution of power, I think, is is absolute paramount. That local communities should be making decisions on, on their own uh, because they understand their systems best. Uh, but at the same time, local communities might not have the purchasing power uh, to get some of the other things uh, ready. Uh, for example, testing kits uh, or PPE. This is where the union government could help with purchases uh, for something or at least money for some things, allocations for something, um, and then devolve the actual use of these products uh, down to the community level. So basically what we're saying is that, first of all, what needs to be done is that the that, that higher levels of government which have greater financial resources should be figuring out ways to get together the equipment that's required to fight the pandemic and also the equipment required to detect that the pandemic is spreading in various areas. Once that's done, then they should be working in conjunction with local governments to figure out what kind of extent of lockdown is required, right? Right, exactly. So, um, Adirudh, when it comes down to community level, right, so uh, what we propose in the document as well is that uh, the union government could form a sort of a strategic reserve for testing kits, uh, give these testing kits down to the local governments to use. But once they actually figure out that, okay, we have a new cluster forming uh, and they need to put containment zones in. What do you think is the kind of uh, healthcare infrastructure that needs to go into place to ensure that people follow quarantine rules? I think that there's an awful lot to be learned from the way that Indian governments have been dealing with uh, quarantine so far. Um, like Kerala, for example, did a really good job in terms of mobilizing local self-governance groups to check in on people who are in quarantine, make sure they get the supplies they need, stuff like that. But I don't really think that's a workable solution for the rest of the country for a lot of reasons. Um, a lot of parts of the country don't really have that kind of state capacity. Um, they don't really have that kind of um, trusting relationship with the state. And more importantly, there's also issues like in terms of, uh, we're seeing that a lot of, for example, in Bangalore, you hear these stories of uh, resident welfare associations, like really kind of uh, going beyond their remit and basically conducting surveillance 
on people who are quarantined, uh, preventing them from coming out to any kind of public spaces at any point of time for any reason, um, not letting them uh, get access to food, stuff like that, you know. So uh, in order to kind of tackle that, I think that what's really required is, uh, as we were saying, right, a more decentralized kind of communication strategy. So communities don't panic. They understand that uh, people who are in quarantine actually need help and should not really be socially ostracized. And there's a lot of ways to do that. I think that one way, for example, would be to form uh, WhatsApp groups with local administrators or Telegram groups with local administrators, uh, something similar to what the Karnataka government has already done. Um, another great way to do that is, I think, would be to leverage telemedicine to monitor people who are in quarantine. Now in Bangalore, for example, what happened was that people who returned from abroad uh, one of my friends, in fact, um, was basically sitting at home for 14 days and was had to send a geotagged selfie to the local police station. Uh, the threat being that if he didn't do that, uh, if he missed even sending it even once, then he would be put in a government-mandated quarantine facility with absolutely atrocious uh, quality standards, right? So instead of uh, using the police as basically a kind of brutal enforcer to make sure that people stick to quarantine, which I think only makes people more distrustful of the state, makes them more inclined to kind of uh, break quarantine and also brings up the question of like how exactly their data and information might be used uh, because we don't really have clear legal procedures for the cops. We don't really um, know how the police are storing this data, who has access to it. I think a better way to do that would be through telemedicine, uh, designating uh, doctors, for example, to look at particular areas, uh, look at cases in particular areas. Uh, since these doctors would already have um, you know, the, the required kind of confidentiality standards, all that would be required is like a basically a training in telemedicine in order to make their care available to people who are already in quarantine. Um, in addition to that, um, there's a question of um, how exactly do you build up capacity for people who are not capable of, of uh, putting themselves in self-quarantine? Uh, for example, if there is community transmission happening in a really dense, low-income area, a slum in an urban area, for example, um, it's not realistic to ask people to quarantine themselves at home because even if they're quarantining at home, there's a very, very high likelihood that other people are going to get the infection. In cases like that, I would think that uh, there should be designated isolation wards, uh, which are set aside for particular areas. So, for example, in a district that doesn't really have much access to healthcare facilities, perhaps the nearest urban area should be a designated isolation ward. There should be a mechanism through which People who have symptoms are able to access telemedicine, are able to report themselves as requiring aid, and there should be like an ambulance facility or something that gets them to the isolation ward without exposing them to a lot of other people. So really, I think the solutions are there. We kind of have um, a little bit of capacity that needs to be further built up, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But we also need to really think about how to use tech more effectively um, and with the right kind of measures, the right kind of control measures, data privacy measures to make sure that people trust the state enough to make sure that people are able to access the facilities that are already there. Right. And we also spoke about as in uh, about ways of improving or, and increasing the number of isolation centers as required. We, I think we also talk about a software through which um, at least doctors can be able to find uh, where uh, there is gaps and where there is space. Uh, if people have to be put into isolation, I think there's lessons to be learned from our current response uh, and gaps to be identified, which need to be plugged in over the next uh, few months to make sure that we are really, really ready, right? Absolutely. I think that one good way to do that is to like really invest in 
hospitals. Um, I think that building up healthcare capacity in rural areas, while it's something that India absolutely must be doing, um, might not be realistic for us to do in the short term. Um, maybe it can be part of like a larger infrastructure stimulus package once the economy is really being opened up, once we're trying to really stimulate it and get started. But for now, I would think that the marginal costs of adding additional healthcare capacity in hospitals, uh, sorry, in, in urban hospitals, and ensuring that people in rural areas have a designated way to get to them safely is really where it's at. But um, then, of course, that really brings up the bigger question of like, how do you increase healthcare capacity in the short term, especially in urban centers? Um, Sunila, what are your thoughts? Uh, so, as you can see, the government till now has been very reactive instead of proactive when responding to the challenges. So, uh, the first solution would be to build the capacity of healthcare professionals and the public health infrastructure. Now, building public health infrastructure would be a long-term measure, but uh, we can focus on how we can uh, strengthen the uh, numbers of healthcare professionals in the short term. So, first of all, uh, there are already existing vacancies in the public health system of India. So, it would be ideal if the government fills up those vacancies so the health system can operate at its full capacity. And uh, another thing is uh, there should be an up-to-date national and state-level database of health workforce so that uh, shortages can be identified in respective areas and the healthcare workforce can be deployed accordingly. And uh, to make up for the shortage of public health facilities, existing infrastructure such as unused buildings uh, uh, can be repurposed in the short term uh, or the buildings can be uh, rented for uh, using them as primary healthcare centers. And uh, state governments can direct registered medical practitioners from private sector to work in dedicated COVID-19 hospitals for a specified duration. And of course, this has to be uh, done by providing the registered medical practitioners with commensurate pay as well as accommodation. Because if uh, because if the RMPs don't have accommodation uh, while working in COVID nineteen hospital, they won't be uh, people will be hesitant to accept them back at their original accommodations, and. Uh, so it is ideal that they are provided with accommodation for quarantine after they are done with their duty at those hospitals. And the RMPs from departments that see less frequent emergencies uh, can be diverted towards COVID-19 hospitals. And uh, since testing and treatment for COVID-19 is covered under the uh, National Health Insurance Scheme of Pradhan Mantri Jan Arogya Yojana, the state government should see how they can empanel more private hospitals and direct them to cater to COVID-19 patients to widen the healthcare reach. So you're saying that, first of all, it might be a good idea to designate certain hospitals as treatment centers specifically for COVID-19. In cases where you don't really have the human resources required to man those, to staff those hospitals, then you can try to get registered medical practitioners from the private sector with commensurate pay to work in these facilities and they also need to be provided with 
accommodations and suitable monetary incentives to make sure that they're willing to work and also they're not they don't feel like they're endangering their families and they're not ostracized by their communities that's a good point and you also said that in order to make sure that access to covid-19 healthcare is relatively equitable um then one way to do that is to extend the availability of health insurance to more and more people and to also bring more private healthcare providers on board with existing uh, public health insurance schemes right right now one of the other ideas that we touched upon was the fact that there are there is a considerable body of um health practitioners uh, who might not be really qualified to um tackle covid-19 itself considering that it's a novel coronavirus but who might be able to help with stuff like general administration making sure patients are comfortable uh, taking you know uh, basic readings of their of their um, critical uh, signs and so on um and these are the ayush practitioners right so people who are who are qualified quote unquote to treat people with homeopathy or ayurveda um how could they actually be leveraged to contribute usefully to the pandemic without you know spreading nonsensical cures like uh, gomutra and so on uh, so uh, the government of maharashtra has started an online qualification course for ayush practitioners so it is an online training course and once they are completed uh, the, once they are done with it they are qualified to uh, manage the covid-19 patients now uh, it is not clear if they are uh, managing like from uh, like initial to severe stages of covid-19 but uh, of course yes as you said ayush practitioners can be really helpful in uh, in at least initial management uh, of symptoms and uh, because they are uh, trained in physical anatomy uh, of human beings right uh, so i guess this can be followed in the rest of india as well so this might help to reduce the burden on allopathic caregivers okay thanks sunia so i mean i think that the really big challenge for india going forward is that um when you see a sudden resurgence of cases there is going to be a massive erosion of of social trust uh, not just in the healthcare system but also in the government's response and in order to kind of in order to address that effectively you have to be investing in healthcare measures right away right and while it might not be politically convenient to invest all this money in building up healthcare systems and like actually investing in bringing doctors and communities on board that's really the only way that any country across the world has managed to successfully rein in the pandemic and unless india does that it's it's really a matter of concern as to uh, how we're going to deal with the next wave of infections that are coming um so doc i, I want to ask you also like now that restrictions are being lifted um and we are really arriving at a consensus it seems that there has to be a way for people to continue uh, daily activities in some limited form and extent um even if you are doing it with with some restrictions on board right so one of the things that we had talked about was this concept of a social bubble to restrict people's contact with strangers so can you tell us a little bit about how that works and how that should feed into uh guidelines for you know daily life after the lockdowns are lifted so your social bubble is basically the group of people you hang out with you spend a lot of time with and both new zealand and australia have been uh, trialing whether uh, approaching lockdown uh, or other unlockdown measures through the idea of uh, increasing your social bubble 
is a good thought. So this was initially proposed by uh, researchers at the University of Oxford um, and University of Zurich, I think Switzerland, um, who said that, look, uh, your chances of getting an infection uh, basically depend on two parameters. Um, the fact that you meet completely new people who have never met before uh, or other when you have physical interaction with others. So those two factors are basically play into what your social bubble is. So the idea is if you, if you limit the meeting new people uh, or you limit uh, actually physical interactions with others, uh, then you automatically limit your exposure to the virus and getting the virus. So based on that, uh, if we look at uh, containment measures beyond a lockdown, we basically try and think that look that there's one big uh, process under which uh, both those things get negated, which is public transport. So if you're in a very crowded bus, if you're in a very crowded metro, you are with a group of complete strangers um, and physical distancing is extremely difficult, right? Uh, so so that is going to be one hotspot that we have to look at. Uh, and then as you go back to work, again, you have to make sure that, okay, if I meet, uh, so if I'm at home, I meet my family, I might meet my domestic help. Uh, then I get to work. Um, if you're in a public transport, then your social bubble goes, increases exponentially. But if you're taking an Uber, for example, then you have the driver who's who's now in your social bubble. Then you get to work and you, you suppose you have five colleagues, right? So now your, your bubble contains of these people. Uh, tomorrow you take on another Uber driver, so you're now extending that bubble slowly. Obviously not as bad as taking public transport, but the idea is how much can we limit this? So then the advisories, for example, for public transport has to be that you limit the number of people who can come onto the bus. Um, bus driver and bus conductor safety is paramount, I mean, with non-negotiation. So they have to be provided PPE. Uh, they have to be, well, at least the N95 mask and gloves. Uh, they should have the right to check people. Uh, if there's someone who's ill, they can be sent back, etc. Right? So Uber actually had a lot of these provisions put in uh, before we went into lockdown. Uh, but even at work, there are certain things that we can do uh, to make sure that people are safe. And the other part of preparing for this uh, second wave is that we should be ready that we might have another lockdown, right? So how do you take this time to prepare for those two things? So I, I think this idea of, of social bubbles is actually very, very powerful, right? Because um, very of it seems like some Indian governments, especially those that aren't too well prepared, are, are thinking of lockdowns as almost like an on and off switch. Uh, whereas it's much better to kind of think of lockdowns as a kind of um, dial that say that, okay, look at the, at the most extreme level, your social bubble is only your household, right? On the other end of the spectrum is your social bubble, including the entirety of India, wherever you want to go. But there's a whole spectrum of potential lockdown levels where your social bubble is perhaps um, just your home and your household and the place you get your groceries from, right? And and variations of that thereof. And those, those really... Uh, I think tying back to our initial idea that if, if you decentralize the response, if you kind of look at particular clusters, that could potentially provide a much more realistic way of of, of negotiating this trade-off, as we said, uh, between public health and the economy. Yeah, and it empowers the individual, right? Because now I can make a decision on my own. So if my workplace allows me to work from home, I would rather do that and protect myself and my loved ones uh, than go and have to work 
in an office when that work can easily be done from home. Um, so one of the things I really liked about uh, this approach that New Zealand took a, uh, from a government point of view. So everywhere you see that schools uh, are starting for those who are kind of in the elder classes, so 11th grade, 12th grade, etc. Um, and most of the young kids are at home. Um, and if you apply social bubble principles, uh, then those who are elder can actually stay at home, right? They don't need to go outside. They can learn from home. If they are at home, their parents can still go outside because these kids should go outside, go to work because these kids can take care of themselves. Um, but, and so it makes sense for them so to be studying from home, which is what New Zealand has done. So New Zealand has, says, has said that those studying in years 11, 12 onwards, uh, classes to be held from home. Uh, but if you are younger and if your parents need to get to work, then those kids can go to school because otherwise then you will have either the parents staying at home, which is added pressure or the, the kid will have to go to daycare or something like that, uh, which means that they are, that the family is unnecessarily extending their social bubble. So the whole concept is that no, we, as a family, we, we limit the social exposure that we have outside um, and decisions are made based on that. Uh, which I think is a really great way because it empowers people to make decisions best fit for them. It allows government to start doing things uh, that will at least get the economy going, but will keep people safe. Absolutely. I think that keeping the economy going, but also keeping people safe is really the priority. It's, and so it's been kind of um, strange to see the guidelines, the latest version of guidelines that have come out. Um, like to, at one level, I agree with some of, some of the points, but at, at another level, I kind of disagree with them. I think a really great example, which is actually directly in conflict with one of the, one of the recommendations we're making is that absolutely no people are going to be allowed to be out of their homes from between, uh, 7 PM and 7 AM. Now at one level, I kind of get that because, um, you are going to have a lot of people who want to be out on the streets, maybe drinking, meeting their friends. Uh, partying like after this lockdown, <laughs> I, I absolutely get that. It's something I feel myself. But on the other hand, um, restricting economic activities to only 12 hours a day actually makes it far more likely that people are going to crowd into limited uh, facilities, limited shops, um, which might potentially compromise social distancing measures. So um, how do you think we should negotiate that, Doc? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, if I work uh, 9 to 6 and then I only have a couple of hours in the morning to do grocery shopping, yes. Everybody who's in that boat with me will come to my grocery shopping place between like before 9, right? So obviously there will be uh, a lot of uh, crowding, which is what we don't want. Uh, so at least having places, essential services open beyond 7 or 24-7 if possible would be great. The 7 to 7 peer rule, right? Uh, in Marathi, we have a saying, uh, uh, which basically means that you have to be be home before 7. And it was something that I grew up with. That, like this was like a dogma in Maharashtrian families that you have to be home by 7. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's a nightmare scenario. Um, so I wonder if there was someone like that who was, uh, who has, uh, provided the guidelines for the 7am to 7pm thing, because the virus doesn't, the virus really doesn't care, right? Whether it's 7pm, 7am, whatever, uh, if you're going to congregate, uh, into groups, uh, there's a likely chance of you getting, uh, the virus and scientifically speaking, our, all our approach has to be is to make sure that people, uh, get plenty of opportunity to go out because people want to go out and they need to go out. Uh, but not assemble in groups. Uh, so 
yeah to me it makes no sense it might make more sense to keep things open later obviously you need to provide safety measures so things have to be um, street lights have to be there so that people feel safe uh, going out uh, you could have increased policing during the uh, evening hours um, obviously the police have to be provided with masks and things like that they can't just be policing without those um, but the other get arounds to it uh, we can't have people staying at home beyond 7 pm i think that there's there's a lot of um, how do i put this panic frankly about um, the pandemic which i think is is really guiding india's uh, knee jerk responses to fighting fighting it as sunila said the government has been overwhelmingly reactive and not proactive in in dealing with this right um i think what we're really trying to emphasize through this document that we've published which once again as i said we'll put a link to it in the description so please check it out um what we're trying to say is that basically it's not impossible it's perfectly possible to fight this pandemic a lot of countries have done it successfully we just need to have a coherent policy response to it and in a lot of ways the pandemic by exposing flaws in india's um, administrative capacities its state capacities um, really brings up opportunities for us to do more we pointed out earlier in this discussion that um, in the long term the government should really be thinking about increasing uh, public health infrastructure especially in rural areas uh, think of that as kind of a way to stimulate the economy in rural areas um it should think about policing especially as something that really needs to be invested in now we've seen a lot of cases especially early on in the lockdown when people didn't really trust the seriousness of the lockdown we saw a lot of cases of them defying it um this happens because of multiple reasons partly because people don't trust the state when the state asks them to do something partly because people don't trust that the state will make essential essential commodities available to them um and partly of course because police brutality has become an established fact as it were in india so how do you resolve that uh, think about the existing curfews at night for example clearly the idea is to deploy police forces to make sure that people aren't out there but you could just make a slightly more nuanced policy application and say look we are going to deploy cops at night but their job instead of making sure that citizens aren't uh, out there uh, should be to make sure that you know social distancing rules are being followed to make sure that citizens feel safe while congregating in uh, essential commodity supplying shops for example um, perhaps uh, invest in getting body cams to police um, use this as an opportunity to train them in reacting better to communities working better with communities use this as an opportunity for example to improve the relationships that people have with local administrators like how many people in india know the name of their uh district collector know the name of the of their municipal councillor um leverage existing state capacities work better with communities invest in a long term plan and really don't panic uh modern science is well capable of dealing with this pandemic india is is does not really lack for human resources doesn't really lack for economic resources it just lacks the policy frameworks to apply them judiciously and to apply them effectively and really what our second wave document is trying to do is show india the way towards that so uh, i was thinking that um uh, look the first time covid-19 came to indian shores even the science of it was pretty less understood i think we're still learning on that front uh, so depending on science to we will have to wait for science to tell us a bit more before we can come out with better measures but there's obviously things that we have learned from the first wave which we need to enact upon uh, so that our second wave does not have as much a big toll um, 
has it the first wave did yeah okay so yes i agree with you anirudh as you said this uh, should be uh, considered as an opportunity uh, to improve the governance system of our country and uh, yes uh, one thing uh, that needs to be taken away from this is that the public health system of the country needs to be really prepared for such future uh, pandemics or epidemics so long uh, investment in public health system uh, is a long term measure and it's something that the government should focus on the thing is the outcomes of public health are not really tangible because uh, the outcomes of public health are something like we are preventing diseases so that is something which is not visible to the public so the government does not really focus on investing in public health system but this should be taken as an opportunity to correct those uh, things and uh, make the public health system of this country even stronger than it is now all right thank you guys so much for joining me um thank you for listening to all things policy and please check out our second wave document you'll find a link in our description if you liked our show don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the ivm network you can tune into them on the ivm podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts you can also follow ivm on social media the handle is at @ivmpodcasts on twitter facebook and instagram and hey if you'd like to dive into takshashila's research on technology strategy and economic affairs check us out at our twitter handle at @takshashila_inst or our website takshashila.org.in